All right, so we have been uh, working of late on the nature of human beings and the nature of God. Last few weeks ago, we talked about human nature and human nature, and we saw the problems we have vis-a-vis -vis God and the problems of sin in particular, and the fortunate, extraordinary, divine um, action that God took on our behalf to try to reconcile us back to himself. And then last week, we talked about God's nature, a being who is purely all-powerful, purely goodness, full of love, eternal love. And um, that then led us into the fact that there's a multitude of persons within the Godhead, three persons in one substance. And if you think about the Nicene Creed, you can see how the Creed attempts to capture some of these concepts, right? So you'll find that the Son is consubstantial with the Father, and now you know what consubstantial means, right? One substance of the Father and the Son. All right, but today we want to talk about Jesus. Who is he, right? Um, and then next week we're going to talk about the angels, the demons, and ghosts. So we've talked about the top level. we talked about us. We all know about animals and plants and rocks. And that leaves, of course, the beings between us and God, and those are the the gods or the spirits, the angels, the demons, and of course that strange category, ghosts. So that'll be a very intriguing conversation next time. But Jesus left, descends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, whoosh, takes off, people are converting all over the place, and the church is just on fire with excitement and engagement and spreading the gospel. And people are remembering all the things Jesus said. Keep in mind, Jesus didn't leave a book behind. Okay. The Bible, as we think of it now, did not even exist. What he left were the 12 apostles, minus, of course, one. <laughs> that didn't go real well. And he left um, the church. And so they were gathering together all the things they remember Jesus said, and they were called the sayings of Jesus. They were thinking about them, mulling them over, teaching them. And part of the teaching mission of the church is to figure out what it all meant. And Jesus said a lot, right? And if you're thinking about, oh, this parable on Sunday morning sermon or this particular text, and you say, well, this is a very difficult thing. Yeah, well, that's what they were worried about too. What, do all this, what does all this stuff mean? And part of what they were trying to figure out is exactly who Jesus was. Because on the one hand, the apostles knew that Jesus was divine, right? They knew he was God, the Son of God. We know from last week that the Son of God doesn't mean you're not God. Right? If you're actually the Son of God, the real Son of God, then you're the only begotten, and you are God, very God, as our creed says. Um, but, you know, how can you be God and a man? And they were trying to figure that out. Well, is he a half-God, half-man, like Hercules? Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. But was he God only appearing to be a man? Some people thought that was true. Other people said, well, he's kind of a divine being, but he's really just a man who's kind of divine, right? And people were like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So you had all these theories quickly coming about, which is perfectly understandable. Remember, as we talked about the Trinity last week, we elicited from you all a number of the major heresies in the church history. <laughs> and that's understandable because you're trying to figure it out and you propose a theory like, oh, well, that has problems. So let's work on this. And you slowly begin to finally come to understand the Trinity is three persons and one divine substance. The problem of 
who Jesus is, God and man, partly God, partly man, 100% of each. I mean, who is he? And the church had to figure this out. Well, here's the formula. Let's start with the answer, and then we'll spend the rest of the class trying to unpack it. All right? Jesus is one person in two natures, meaning One hundred percent God and one hundred percent man. And what we've got to do is try to understand what that means and how that is possible and then the significance. So let's start with what might be the easier part given our work lecture last week and let's join St. John who tries to talk about this at the very beginning of his epistle. Not his epistle, his gospel. So turn to St. John's gospel. Right at the beginning. Line one of the beginning. Page 78 on the New Testament portion of this nice red one, if you happen to have it. If you have the internet, just look up Gospel of John. You'll find it in a zillion different versions. It doesn't matter which one you have, more or less. Page 78 in the red edition. And let's see what St. John had to say about this. Keep in mind the categories we learned from last week about the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right. So John begins with the beginning. You could almost view this as the New Testament version of Genesis. And right away, right at the beginning with God, an unmade person is the eternal word. Now, from last week, you're like, oh, the eternal word is that's one of the names of the Son. Because the Son is the wisdom of God. And another way to talk about the wisdom of God is to talk about the word or the concept or the rationality. Word, think of it as a significant concept, not just like a term. And it is through him that everything is made. He's with God and he is God. And that tells us two things, right? One, he's with God, which means... There's two persons, at least. We know there's three, of course, but that's not what John's emphasizing here. The Father and the Son. And he is God. So he's not just the Son of God like Hercules might be the Son of Zeus. He's eternal. Every single thing that's made is made through him. Now, remember what we said about the Word. The Word is God revealed. So anytime you see God revealing himself, the Son has something to do with it. He has to do with it naturally, and He has to do with it supernaturally. So when God creates the world, this is a massive, massive demonstration of who God is. And therefore, we find out by means of the Son, the world is being created. 
So when you see in Genesis, and God said, let there be light, and all these things, when God created the world in one massive explosion of being, that's the sun doing it. Similarly, supernaturally, the greatest revelation of God comes through who? The sun. In fact, later John goes so far as to say that the only possible way to come to the Father is through the Son. Now, why is that? Because God, as he is in himself, is not known to us. We don't see him. We don't smell him. Who is he? But whenever God is revealed, it's God known. It's God thought. It's God explained. And that, of course, is the Son. So in order to know the Father, you must go through the Son. You may not know the son's name, right? Maybe you live in the pre-Christian era. But if you understand God at all, it's because that knowledge came through the son. So, he is the revelation of God. He is the access point. And in the end, we have to go through the son to know the father. And you can see this when some of the things Jesus says about himself, which if he isn't the son of God, are absolutely bizarre. I am the truth. Who can say you're the truth? I am the way. How could anyone say you're the way? Not a way, the way. I am the life. How can you have life within yourself? Right? The only way that's possible is if you are the one who is. Then, of course, you contain life or being within yourself. The only way you can be the way is if you are the path to the Father. And, of course, that means you kind of need to be the Son, right? And the only way to be truth itself is if you are the source of truth, the source of all being. Remember, truth is correspondence with reality. And who is God? Maximal reality. So again, how can Jesus say these things? If he were an ordinary prophet or an ordinary teacher, this would immediately qualify him as crazy. Right? You know, some people act like, well, Jesus, you know, not the son of God, but, you know, decent guy. He taught some good lessons. Trouble is, that doesn't work. You can't go around saying, I think we should love one another, we should care for one another, and by the way, my name is Napoleon Bonaparte. As soon as I say that, you're like, oh boy, here we go. Call the white coats. Right? But it's worse if I say I'm Jesus Christ. You're like, oh man, he's really lost it. This RCA stuff, it's just gone to his head. But Jesus Christ, of course, wouldn't go around saying he's Jesus Christ without being a problem because, of course, he was Jesus Christ. The issue would be if he said, I'm God. If you say you're God, you immediately disqualify yourself from sanity, right? That's the normal interpretation. So to say Jesus is just a good teacher, saying you're the son of God and saying you're a good teacher, and that's it, is a problem. Because the claim to divinity negates your goodness, doesn't it? Unless you actually are God. So yes, Jesus can be a good teacher if he's also God. But he cannot be merely a good teacher. You understand? And that's why in the ancient church we have this trilemma of who Jesus is. One, he is nuts. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. Thank you so much. Two, yep, he's a liar. A deceiver like uh, David Koresh, one of those types of people. Most people who go around saying these things, of course, are either crazy or they are tricksters. Lastly, he's telling the truth. And those are the only three possibilities. See, on these two, it's false. And either he's unaware of it, in which case he's nuts, or he is aware of it, in which case he's a liar. 
If it's not false, then it must be true. And that's it. Those are the only three possibilities. So if you think about the question, who is Jesus, be thinking about this trilemma. Because there just aren't any other options. That he's a decent rabbi, he was a good example, doesn't cut it. You cannot be a good example when you go around saying you're God if you're not. And not just God, but making these absolute declarations. I'm the way. I'm the truth. Well, I'm sorry, you're a cult leader. Unless you actually happen to be the son of God, then well, okay, you're not a cult leader. So John says he's not a cult leader. He actually is the truth. He is the life. He is the eternal word. So Jesus is God. You'd be like, well, so far he hasn't said anything about Jesus. You're just reading that into the text. Fair enough. Let's zip down a little bit. Hmm. Nope, nope, nope. Okay. Ah, I find something helpful here. Take a look at line 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. And from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So who is the eternal word? Jesus. So, is Jesus God? Yep. And remember, you can't be part God, not really. You're either God or you're not. We're not in a paganism system. So you're either God or you're not. And that's why in the creed, what do we say? True God from true God. Begotten, not made. Consubstantial with the Father. You see what the, the uh, council is saying? We really need to get this right. So we don't confuse who it is we're talking about. So, is Jesus God? Yes. Everyone understand? Any questions about that? Now, maybe he's God, but the humanity, well, that's tricky. Right? I mean, do we really think God becomes a baby? Right? Dies? Maybe it was like an apparition. Maybe the humanity is like a phantasm, ghostly. And there were some early thinkers in the church, around the church, outside the church ultimately, who suggested things like this. And the apostles were like, no, 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 not a phantasm. We beheld him. We touched him. Remember St. Thomas at that last, one of those last meetings with Jesus after he rose from the dead? He appears out of nowhere right in their midst with the doors locked. And Jesus comes right to Thomas and said, so, what do you think? Come on, touch me, feel my body. And earlier, the, he came to the disciples and the first thing they thought is, well, he's a ghost. Not unreasonable. If you saw somebody who was just dead, what would you think? It's a ghost. And Jesus, mindful of this, tells them, well, guys, remember, ghosts don't have physicality. So he said, give me some food eat some fish, and they all look down. <gasps> nope, didn't fall through. Not a ghost. Right? Physicality. Physicality before the resurrection. Physicality after the resurrection. Physicality when he goes up into heaven, taking human nature into the divine essence. So, 
we say not only is he 100% God, we say also he is 100% human. Now, here's the problem. How do these mix? How do they mix? Because you might think to yourself, yeah, because the scriptures say that Jesus grew in wisdom while he was growing up. Right? If you're omniscient, why do you need to grow in wisdom? If you're omnipotent, how can people put you on a cross? Right? You would think the nails would automatically pop out, like Superman. So how does this happen? I mean, this seems like this is the thorny problem, right? How can you be God and man at the same time? Well, that's, that's actually the problem. How do we explain that? And what does that mean? Any ideas? What heresies can we elicit from you this week? <laughs> you agree this is a thorny problem? Let's see what St. Paul has to say. He helps us. John, go on further. I don't know whether you know these books in order, so I'm just going to run them through Acts, then Romans, then the Corinthian text. Keep going. Galatians, Ephesians, and then after Ephesians, Philippians. So zip over to page 165, Philippians chapter 2. Line 5. Page 165. Or... If you have those uh, digital Bibles, then you can find it wherever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, the form is the essence, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. So what St. Paul is saying is this. Jesus, in his essence, knew that claiming to be equal with God was not a trick. It was not an improper move. Because he is God, he had every right to claim and show himself as he truly was. Now, if he had fully revealed his glory on earth, what would have happened to the earth? It probably would have completely melted. So fortunately, he dimmed it. But he massively dimmed it, right? One time he didn't dim it. Remember that time when uh, those three guys, Peter, James, and John, went up to that mountain? And Jesus just slightly turned up the light. And he was so bright they could hardly even see him. And then Moses and Elijah suddenly came out of heaven and they were all talking. The apostles are so struck by this, they start doing strange things. Let's build, you know, tabernacles to everybody. <laughs> no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> He did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped. In other words, he could have claimed it. He could have shown his glory, but he would not have been able to accomplish the mission. So what did he do? He emptied himself. Now here's the question. Of what did he empty himself? Could he empty himself of his divinity? Can God not be God? Right. We saw last week that contradictions are impossible. God cannot negate his own divinity. So by emptying himself, St. Paul is not saying he emptied himself of his divine essence. So what 
Of what did he empty himself? Okay, that's a possibility that he just said, well, I guess I can't be human. <laughs> Except he kind of seemed to show up. And he seemed to be human. So he couldn't empty himself of his divinity. He can't empty himself of his humanity. You're like, okay, great. We're back to 100% of each. But then what is this talking about? So well, Jeff, my translation says he made himself nothing. Okay. So by making himself nothing, he's not, he's not emptying himself of his divinity, but is he giving up his right? Yeah. As being, he's giving up his right. Yep, the phrase kene, empty himself, refers to the grasping. In other words, the showcasing, the right to lay claim to this. Exactly. He can't get rid of who he is. But what he can do is get rid of showing it off. So what did Jesus empty himself of? The expression of who he was which you remember from previous weeks we call the glory of God. So what Jesus did is did not reveal who he was in his appearance. And that meant that many divine attributes he shielded and turned down. Clearly his omnipotence. Because again, you can't put nails through a being who's showcasing his omnipotence, can you? He has to let you do it, right? With respect to his knowledge, what did Jesus do? Well, if you're going to learn the way we human beings learn, you cannot be accessing an infinite computer all the time. Right? And the mind of God is beyond any computer. So what did Jesus do? He simply cut off access for the purpose of his expression. Every now and again, the Father would enable Jesus by permitting it for him to access the divine Son nature within him. And Jesus will say things like, I did nothing of myself, but only that which the Father taught me. And in those instances, he accesses his divine essence, and then, of course, he can tell us whatever he wants to. But the rest of the time, he only puts this over here, cuts it off, and only acts on the information he would have as any one of us based on whatever he had gone through. Not even one of us, because we know way more sciences than Jesus did as a man. Do you understand what we're talking about here? What we mean? Questions about this? I can't find the verse. It's Philippians what? Five? Two, five, six, seven, and eight. Yep. Go ahead and read that through. And this was so important because being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. So this is about humiliation. Jesus had the right, as the eternal son, to fully express who he is. But he knew for our sakes that would undermine his mission. And so he had to humble himself to such a degree, he even allowed himself to be killed in a horrific way. That does not eliminate his divinity. It is a mark of his divinity because it's eternal love. It is not the elimination of his humanity. It's the mark of his humanity because a phantasm, a ghost, cannot be nailed to a cross and suffer and have all his blood run out. So, 
we say then that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And what we need to try to do is understand the humanity of Christ. Now, we've just talked about it from within how the scriptures talk about it. Let's now use the language we learned from Aristotle and think about this. What did Aristotle help us through our process of definition to figure out what human nature is? What does it mean to be human? Now we'll see whether you learned anything. Mm. Yes. What is a human being? What does it mean to be human? We do have agency, and therefore we have to have rationality because we are persons, yep. But how are we different from all the other kinds of persons? All the persons are conscious. No, from the other persons who aren't human persons. Oh, okay. We're human persons. There are non-human persons. Next week we'll learn about some more. And of course, God is a person. So, well, no. I mean, depends on the nature of the virtues, whether you learn them in time or not. So maybe we can make that work. Correct. We have a body. And we reference that rational animal, remember? Rational animal. So our animality, our physicality, and this is how we're distinguished from those other persons, right? Now, we have to be more specific, a little bit more specific here, because technically, this definition would fit C.S. Lewis's talking beavers. It would fit Tolkien's elves. Now, you might point out, please, Dr. Steele, there are no talking beavers. I've never met one. And as for talking elves... I'm sure elves talk, but I've never met them either. These are fictional beings. True, they are fictional beings. However, what if it turns out there are rational animals out there that we haven't met yet? Right? Jesus isn't just a rational animal. He's human. So, to be human is to be a rational animal of a certain sort. Not having great big teeth, fur, a big tail, right, and swimming around. God could have made rational beavers, and if he had made rational beavers instead of rational humans, he might have been the beaver who was drowned in the great dam and sacrificed himself for all the beavers. All right? The fact that we have arms and legs and mammalian, you know, it could have been different. But it wasn't different. So we have to specify the kind of animal and the kind of rationality. So which kind of animal? The specifically human one, and of course, this is for us now much easier to reference by the kind of DNA we have. And we most definitely do not have beaver DNA. Yeah? But also, even the rationality. We have to talk about this. Because you might think, and we'll find out next week correctly, that angels also think. So, how is our thinking differently, work function differently than the others? And here's the answer, and this is gonna, might surprise you. Unlike the angels, human beings have soul. Okay, soul. You say, whoa, what's a, what's a soul? This is a new term. Fair enough. So, backing up, 
We know that if we die, our bodies fall in disrepair, rip apart, we do not cease to be. The I, the person, the self, continues. We know that the self is not material because the material of you can be completely destroyed and nevertheless, the I, the self, can be with God. So there's a part of humanity that is not material. Okay, there's an immaterial part. In theological language, that's a spirit. Now, so far, you think about this, you realize, well, the angels are spirits. They're finite spirits. Correct. God is an infinite spirit. Correct. So how are we different from the angels? How is the human spirit different? The answer is the soul. A soul is an idea instantiated in matter. Angels have no materiality. They have no bodies. So to be human is to have a spirit of a certain sort. A spirit that functions as a soul and thus informs and gives shape to the body. Another way to think of it is this. The soul is the fittedness of this spirit to body. I'll give you an example to help you understand. Imagine you're a captain on the high seas back in 1780. Driving along with your ship, big storm. All right? You notice the ship seems to be listing a little to port, and you're curious about what's going on. So you peer over the side, and you notice a big gaping hole in water flooding it. You're like, ah, I have discovered the problem with my ship. There's a hole. And so you tell your crew, get down there, stuff sails in that hole, right? Pump out, pump, get the pumps going, we got to solve the problem. The captain does not feel the hole. He has to see it, identify it, and think the hole. Now, what if you were the ship? Think about that difference. Supposing you had a hole in your leg. How would you discover it? Would you gaze at your leg and notice a hole? Red ooze coming out and think to yourself, ah, I appear to have damage to my leg. Do you intellectually apprehend that you have holes in you? Nope. Long before your intellect ever realized a thing, what happened? Massive agonizing pain when the wound appeared. However, and you don't cognize it, you feel it. Then your intellect gets active. Of course, this is an extremely useful system for us, right? If we had to wait around for our intellects to catch up with our bodily damage, we would suffer far more in terms of loss of health, loss of life. So it's actually a really good system. But if you were a demon possessing a human body, you would not experience that body's experience the way we experience holes. You would experience the human experience the way the ship captain does. Because an angel mind is not fitted for a body. 
An angel mind is not a human soul. So the only thing a demon can do in possessing a body, because it's not his body, he's not made for a body, his intellectual system doesn't link in to a body. So he has to observe the body from the outside, as it were, and figure out what's going on. It's a purely intellectual exercise. But you say, we're different. We are in our bodies, which, while not perhaps perfectly true, nevertheless gives you a much better experience, right? We experience our bodies. Our minds are designed to receive information through the senses. Angels don't have senses. So angels and demons couldn't possibly function that way. Jesus, the person of Jesus, is the eternal word. So did Jesus possess, was Jesus possessed by the eternal word? Was Jesus some poor schmuck and the son of God came down upon him and possessed him? And it turns out all this time he had schizophrenia, two people trapped in there? Like, well, the formula we said is one person. Agreed. So who is the person of Jesus? The eternal word. The Son. So, here's what had to have happened. For Jesus, for God to become man in the incarnation, he had to put on, assume human nature. Meaning, not just take on human body, human DNA, but take on the fittedness of his spirit for humanity. Or, as we put it in theological language, he had to become a soul. Which kind of a soul? Not a beaver soul, not an elvish soul, a human soul. Even when you die and go to heaven as a spirit for a little while, you're still a human soul. A human soul that is eagerly awaiting the redemption of the body, as we've read it with St. Paul in Romans 8. In other words, when is that resurrection going to happen? i got to get reconnected to the body. I'm looking for this. You want to be complete. You understand? You are not complete without your body. So, a soul is that part of your spiritual nature which informs and is fitted for the body. And it's fitted for a particular kind of body. That's why it's a human soul as opposed to some other kind. So Jesus has a soul. He is human. 100% human. Because he has all the elements that you have to have to be human. And you can see how important this is again in our creed. Notice near the middle of it where we talk about the incarnation. We say he was what? Born? What was the preposition? In the Virgin Mary? Of the Virgin Mary. Now why does that one little word matter? No. No. If he only came through her, he could have been like uh, just using her as a vehicle. Like a torpedo tube. Launch! There was actually an early Christian group who hated the idea that God could become man. And worse of all, could possibly have anything to do with a woman. 
So they said, okay, okay, because Mary was around, you know, the whole virgin birth thing, like, oh, we got to accept that. How do we deal with this? We know. We will say that the eternal son entered into her, but never actually touched her. And when he went through the birth canal, he slid through in such a way that there was no actual contact. Because most assuredly, touching a woman is just, frankly, disgusting. Mm -hmm. These people hated physicality. They hated spirit. They hated human nature. And as always happens with people that hate the physical and hate human nature, they hated women. Which sect were they? The Gnostics. We'll talk about them shortly. They have been and always will be the main enemies of the church. So the church wanted to get everyone to understand. No, no, no. <laughs> Mary is hugely important for so many reasons, but this is one of them. God was born of Mary. He didn't pass through her without touching. He didn't merely pass through while touching. Part of who Jesus was, was Mary. That egg cell was human. You understand? Human DNA. So, of Mary, born of a woman, what does it mean to be human? You must have the animality. How do you become fully human? You are born. So, Jesus was born as a baby, grew up as a baby, cutting off that full access to his divine knowledge, his divine power, and he learned things and grew up more or less just like the rest of us, except for those times when the Father specifically opened his mind up to these extra things. Like when he was 12 years old and in the temple, and he starts chatting it up with the local priests, and all of a sudden, they're the ones asking him questions. He's giving them answers they've never conceived of. Well, guess what? Eternal word, the wisdom of God, right? You see what's going on? At that point, this was opened up. The father made this clear to him. And when Mary and Joseph come and say, where have you been? We've left without you. We have no idea where you were. He's like, well, isn't this where I should be? I'm doing my father's business. Being perfectly clear to him. All right, let's talk then about these Gnostics because this is a big problem. Where to start? Let's go way back. So there are some interesting, very ancient stories about how the angels that fell, fell. Now, we know in our case, we had to be given something where we could choose to trust God or not. Something that is not strictly moral that we might be able to figure out is reasonable. Right? In our lives, you can see what this is. Being told to submit yourself to water and that somehow mere water, allegedly, is going to wash away sin, that sounds like a, a lot to swallow. But could God use water and your faith in the process as a means to forgive sins? course. You say, well, I just don't believe that. Okay. If you choose not to trust God and not get baptized, so be it. The rest of us are like, well, if God instituted the system, that's his prerogative. He's God after all. And we're just going to have to trust him that that's the way it works. 
And every one of us that has been baptized, put our faith in God through that means of grace, right? So for us right now, the originating means of grace is our faith in being baptized. Baptism is not a moral law. In no legal code from Hammurabi, Moses, the Romans, American Constitution never says it's morally required for you to be baptized. Being dunked in water is not a moral requirement. But it is a sacramental requirement that God added as a means to see whether we would put our faith in him. Here's the thing. Every species of free beings has to have something that God offers to them to put their faith in that they can't fully understand the reason for. If it was straight ethics, everybody could realize I really shouldn't kill people. Right? If God had told Adam and Eve, look, do not slap each other, Adam and Eve would have been like, well, why would we do that? You think to yourself, well, that's a tough one to follow. My husband needs a few slaps. Okay. <laughs> Adam and Eve would not think like that. Right? Because they would have no distortion in their appetites like we do that somehow makes evil plausible. Right? In the Adam and Eve story, they're totally innocent. Their rationality, their apprehension, their desire all map onto each other perfectly. So trying to convince Adam and Eve to commit immoralities would be exceptionally difficult. They would think that just doesn't make any sense. Just like for you, the idea of cannibalism probably doesn't make any sense. Right? From God's perspective, jealousy doesn't make any sense. Covetousness doesn't make any sense. Theft doesn't make any sense. You may be like, well, they kind of make sense to me sometimes. Exactly. Because your desires are a little bit distorted. Right? And we're trying to fix that up now. But at the beginning, with Adam and Eve, their appetites were in no way distorted. So convincing them to sin is not an easy thing to do. And you can't just say obey the moral law because they would be like, of course, this is easy. So for us, we have baptism as the addition. For them, they had that story about the tree. Don't eat this tree. Again, is there any moral law against eating trees? No, trees are delicious. Eat them. But this one, nope, don't eat that one. Here's the thing. Adam and Eve did not know the reason for the command, did they? The serpent comes and offers a lie as to the reason, a false motive. And Eve accepts that and does not put her faith in what God told her. Hence the fall. Similarly, let's go even further back to the angels. In the old stories, the angels were also given something that was, again, not moral. Something extra that they also didn't fully know the reason for. And here's how it went. One day, God is chatting up with the angels. So, guys, I've got this great idea. Oh, really? What is it now? So far, it's been very interesting. Well, I was thinking, I'm going to take your intellectual natures, and I'm going to merge it with these animal creatures down here. And I'm going to make a hybrid who's composed of both kinds of stuff. And the angel's like, well, that's definitely strange. Right? And some of them will be like, novel, creative, brand new kind of being. And a third of them were like, I don't know. I mean, you really want to mix our pure spiritual natures with all that muck and mud and biology? And well, then God added the real clincher. 
He said, oh, by the way, once I make them, I'm going to become one of them. And at that point, that third of those angels are like, that's it. Lost his mind. You cannot mix the incorruptible God and put him into filthy, gross dirt. And they rebelled. Two-thirds of them are really like, well, if that's what God wants to do, seems good to us. We don't fully get it, right? Why is he doing this? We don't know. You might think up a few reasons, like it would be something else if he made pure spirits, he made pure material things, and then he decided to enter into his creation by bringing the two together with a special kind of being called man, literally the image of God. You can see that. But the full rationale, why God is doing this, they don't know. In fact, we don't fully know yet. But one-third of them rejected this. They hated the idea that God would mix their pure, put in quotes, okay? In quotes. Their pure intellectual natures with this dirty, crappy muck. They were the first ever racists. You see it? Technically, they would be speciists, but whatever. They wrongly demoted matter. God made matter, didn't he? And when God created the world, what did he say about every one of the days of creation? He looked and he saw that it was what? Good. Good. Does that include dirt? Yep. Yes. Does that include blood vessels? Yes, does that include women's reproductive systems? Yes. What do you know? So, matter. Can I erase all this? There are two kinds of stuff. Spirit, which is just intellectual activity, the thing that does that and matter. God created both, therefore they are both The demons hate the idea that spirit should be in matter. So they demean matter by saying it is impure, filthy, or all the way down to simply evil. And therefore, the only thing left for goodness, where does goodness have to be then? Only on the spiritual side. So in this philosophy, the philosophy of the demonic, being spiritist, a spirit, is great. Being a creature that has any connection to materiality is bad. And how do creatures like ourselves come into the world? We come into the world through women. And so, who do you think the demons hate the most within the human species? 
So not only do we find the origin of racism, we also find the origin of misogyny. In other words, the hatred of women. So when God reaches down with Gabriel and finds a young peasant Jewish girl and says, you are the one by whom we are coming into the world. God is coming into the world through you. The demons are like, we knew it. And they hated her. They thought they scored big with Eve. But then this new one, and so you will find throughout history a continual assault on feminine sexuality, feminine reproduction, and motherhood. Because Mary becomes the Theotokos, the God-bearer. And the demons just could not believe that God, pure spirit, could possibly intermix himself with matter. But you see, there's nothing wrong with matter. Nothing at all. And so from God's perspective, what's the problem? And so the church said in a council, they called Mary Theotokos, which is Greek, and it means the God-bearer. She is the one who bore God into the world. And this is good. Mary ratifies the status of women. Check mark. The incarnation ratifies the status of human nature. Misogyny defeated by Mary. Racism defeated by the incarnation. There is nothing wrong with human nature. It is great. Do not fall for the lie of the little mermaid. Do not sacrifice the entire undersea kingdom and your father just to be a girl. Now, you being human beings, feel free to be girls. But the girls, that is. Don't sacrifice your humanity to become a mermaid. But otherwise, also don't sacrifice your humanity to become a pure spirit. Because there's a lot of people in the world today who are trying to do that. The people who talk about wanting to become a pure consciousness, wanting to ascend beyond the limitations of the body and to become a pure spirit, pure energy. Notice the word pure by all these things, okay? Very convenient. They get to attach that to their doctrine. But what are they really saying? They're saying the goal of humanity is to shed the human, get rid of the body, and ascend to become a new kind of thing. What kind of thing? An angel. A pure spirit. Which, by the way, is impossible because though, yes, you can shed the body and at death you'll discover just how this works momentarily, okay? You're still a soul. You don't become an angel. And frankly, why would you want to be an angel? Now, for all the angels in here, and there's one for every one of us, you'll find out about that next week. No offense to your nature. But we don't want to be you. And do you want to be us? I didn't think so. 
but we get to eat oranges, right? We drink coffee. We look at blue skies. We do art. We sculpt. We write poems. We explore. Do you really want to just become a pure spirit and just... Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to give up pizza? This is what I'm saying. <laughs> and yet, think about all the religions in the world whose objective, their entire understanding of human destiny is to crush the physical with all kinds of rules and regulations. Like, I grew up as a Baptist. What kind of rules? Some, what, three or four of you grew up as Baptists? No dancing. Why on earth would you not dance? How can you be human and not dance? How about this one? No alcohol. God forbid we should enjoy the grape. Jesus thought of the grape so highly. That was his first miracle. And by the way, Mary's the one who put him onto it. She didn't think there was any problem with this. And the people at the wedding were well past the limit. You say, why? Well, number one, they didn't have to drive. And number two, what are you supposed to do at weddings? Get plastered, right? Within reason, of course. The deacon's not here, so I can get away with a little bit more than normal. But there's nothing wrong with alcohol. There's nothing wrong with food. There's nothing wrong with sex. Think of all the religious people that think that sex is somehow a problem. You know, it's just suspicious. It's kind of dirty. It is not dirty. It is thrilling. That's why you like it. You say, yeah, but liking it, that just can't be spiritual. Why? If by spiritual, you mean being a spirit, then you're right. Because spirits don't have sexuality because they don't have bodies. But if by spiritual you mean good, then since matter is good, it follows that sexuality, another thing God created and said that it was good, in fact, sexuality is the one thing he had to add. Because when he made the man, he said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And he put Adam through a little song and dance to figure this out. Takes him out, looks at the animals. Education begins. They have males. They have females. I'm a male. Where's my female? This is a problem. Objection. And God's like, okay, you understand? Yep. Go to sleep, Adam. You are about to see something great. And out comes a woman. And then man is good. So the completion of man is not the elimination of something dirty, wretched. Let's get rid of these women. No. It is the creation of the woman. Without the woman, you don't have complete human nature. It's good. So the Gnostics throughout history have attempted to degrade the good things, because they degrade the body. And they end up going in one of two directions. Let's take a look at that. What's their reasoning for degrading the body? The Gnostics? Yeah. Because they think the goal is to become a pure spirit. What puts them onto that, though? Like, like where does that idea come from? Oh, that's a mystery. That's a good one. But before the church was around, there were mystery religions, the cults of Mithridates of Isis, 
and others that were pagan, and they have these kinds of objectives. And they always create special kinds of rules their followers have to go through that kind of slowly pull them out of normal human life, that make them weird. And of course, you know how throughout history, a lot of people think, well, if I'm weird, I must be spiritual. Whereas what they are is spiritist. To be spiritual is to be good, right? But the word spiritual is ambiguous. It can mean either spiritist, wanting to be a spirit, which is not good, that's bad, or spiritual, as opposed to something evil, could be good. It's the ambiguity of that language which helps cause this problem. But it's very easy for people to want to do this. And the reason is what the Gnostic is actually being offered by becoming a pure spirit. If you become a spirit, if you were, let me, you can't become a spirit, but let's suppose you were a spirit, right? Think about how people react to, like, let me give you an example. We're in a room, we're all like, ooh, it's dark, there's a crystal ball in the middle, and all of a sudden you watch this happen. And you're like, oh, it floated. Must be the spirits. Right? Well, watch this. I made it float too. What's the big deal? You say, well, you needed a hand. So what? Are you really supposed to be impressed with a floating pen? So an angel or a demon in this case could make a pen float. Big, fat, hairy deal. So what? That doesn't make a bit of difference. We should not be impressed with this. But people get impressed because what they're really after is the powers that they think attach to being a spirit. And what do spirits have the ability to do? We'll find out more again about this next week. Angels are huge minds. And bad ones are also huge minds. And they can do things with their intellects and wills and manipulate objects and know things that we could not. So what is the draw for someone to become a spirit, to join a religious group like this? Every Gnostic religion has the normal people down here, and then it has the special initiates up here. And they always have to go through a whole series of levels, which usually cost and they cost yourself and your liberty. But why would somebody do this? Why would somebody pay $250,000 minimum to become a Scientologist? Scientology is an absolute Gnostic cult that's operation right now. Okay? Why would they do that? Because they are after what's at the top. And what did L. Ron Hubbard offer his followers? Supernatural powers. What did the wizards of old, Paracelsus and all these people, what were they after? Supernatural powers. Well, those are not the power of God because God doesn't let us in on that sort of thing, does he? The last thing we need is power like telepathy. Look what we do to each other already. Thank God we are limited, right? But that's what those people are after. But it's not God's kind of power. It's not God's ends. So what is the source? Well, if it's not God, it can't be an angel because an angel is a good spirit. The only other possible source is what? The demonic. And what are the demonics after? Power and domination. So why do people join Gnostic groups? Because they want to exercise power and dominion over other people. I, I think also... Uh... 
So if you look at Buddhism, right, which um, denies the body as well, yeah, and uh, you're deleting attachment to suffering through Buddhism. So um, you're looking at, I think a, a lot of people, in our, our age is quite comfortable, but those ages were not quite comfortable, and they yep. didn't have access to like pain medicine or yep. good operations or things like that. And so a lot of um, what was offered, I think, is a, a release from suffering, yep. which we would now call disassociation. Perhaps. In part, yep. In part, yep. And so, you know, if you um, have gangrene and you don't live in a society where the other option is a saw, the idea yeah. of being pure spirit for a few minutes so that you don't have to experience the pain in mm -hmm. your body. Yep. And then just think, we have a crazy opioid crisis right now. Yep. Absolutely nuts. Like they delivered. 6,000 units of Narcan to 43202 last year. That's a lot of people escaping. Yep. And it's not physical pain anymore because we solved that one. But it's emotional and psychological pain yep. that when you are trying to escape the body, you take the needle. Right? Well, those people aren't just trying to escape the body. What you're saying is they're trying to escape everything. They're trying to escape an emotional problem. Maybe they're cool yeah. with their body. Maybe their body Rarely. does for them what it wants to do, you know, at least initially. Yeah. But they have such an emotional pain yep. that they, they have to escape it. And so escaping into spirit is a way for them to escape pain. It's a way, if you're not present in your body, you don't have to feel that pain. Yeah, except for the drug addict, he's uh, not pursuing spirit. Right. He's pursuing the maximization of the body. But you could do it another way. You could sit in meditation and yeah. you could escape your body yeah. through meditation. If you could master those occult arts and form, figure out how to achieve the out-of-body experience and maintain yeah. it, yeah. then you could do that. Yeah. Yep. You, could, you could escape your body and just, right. you know, not live in your body very much. And right. Body, and so, so it's not necessarily that they're looking for um, power over other people. Maybe right. they're looking for an escape from pain. There are a number of different motives why people pursue yeah. Gnostic cults. One of them is power. Another of them is esoteric knowledge. Trying to get in on the secrets what are the secrets? You know, everyone's convinced there's all these secrets in the Vatican, right? And you remember Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, tried to make it out like the church is covering up all these secrets. The church is not a Gnostic cult. Everything that Jesus gave, he put it in public. There's definitely previously hidden truth that is revealed by the church, but it is given to all. What the Gnostic does is he's got his sources of hidden truth, which are demonic, because that's the only possible source once you work through the possibilities. And those things, they keep for themselves. Right? And if you use Scientology, again, as an example, when you get up to the highest operating fate and levels of the system, you get in on the big secrets, which we now all know about because it's all been written about. We're like, good God, they actually think this. But by the time you've invested $230,000, it's amazing what you will believe. <laughs> Wouldn't the Gnostic cults like cycle out after one, two, three generations once there's enough fallacy that hey, people aren't obtaining the supernatural power that's being supposedly granted once you hit yeah. that threshold and then 
It depends on the cult. Let me try to get at this by showing you the two ways they go, and that might help answer your question and also add some more things to what you're talking about. All right? Because like, I view that there would then be an expiration on Scientology, right? You know, it sits around for 100 years. People realize Except that there's there. a new form that emerges. Gnosticism has always been outside the church. Scientology is a non-Christian group. Mm -hmm. But it immediately infected the church while St. Peter was still alive. Right. Uh, Simon Magus showed up and asked to buy the Holy Spirit's power. He wasn't interested in love. Mm -hmm. He was interested in power should be the greatest wizard of all. And Peter's like, no way, buddy. Mm -mm, that's not what we're doing. And Magus is the one that started the Christian variant of Gnosticism. And we've had it infecting and reinfecting the church ever since. So it's something big. Okay? So, so the motives are supernatural power, supernatural knowledge. There is a kind of an escapism, but it's an escapism to something better. Not just not pain. It's to become something. Namely, a disembodied yeah, spirit. Honey, what she's getting at is what we were talking about the other night, which is the two sides of Gnosticism. Which yeah, is well, that's what I'm about to get into. Yes. Okay. So here we go. Jeff, I have one quick question. Yes. I was in a Bible study once. We studied First John, first, second, third letters of John. Yeah. Was part of the unbelievers that he was talking about to be aware of, the conversation was, were they Gnostics? Yeah. Okay. St. John is targeting Gnostics left and right. Okay. St. Paul in the Colossian letter early on says, there are some people that are out worshiping angels and they're making up all these rules that have nothing to do with performing good work and love and charity. Well, who worships angels? People who worship angelic in nature. Okay. In other words, the earliest Gnostics. Okay. So this was a problem very early. And the Christian apostles are targeting this and then the apostolic fathers are targeting this and it becomes a massive problem. Okay. And this is why the incarnation is, again, so important because the incarnation has to be rejected by the Gnostics. And so all these weird ideas we've been talking about that, well, you know, God never touched the virgin, you know, or here's one, the son of God was separate from Jesus the man he couldn't possibly suffer pain because he's pure God, pure there again, right? And so what happened was Christ at Jesus' baptism, the Christ, now a possessing being, fell on Jesus, took him over, and just at the Garden of Gethsemane flew away and let poor schmuck Jesus go on the cross. That was another one of the theories. Other ones denied the resurrection completely because all that matters is the pure spirituality of it. Right? And this is widespread in Karl Barth's philosophy and you know, all through Protestantism. I had an Orthodox priest one time tell me, well, Protestantism is the Gnostic heresy. You do know that, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, now it makes sense. We'll talk more about that to help that yeah, fully no, no. make sense. Oh, not for nothing. There's a Gnostic Facebook page. Well, yeah, that's not surprising. Okay, so here we go. With respect to the body. On the one hand, there are people who wish to diminish the body in order to leave it 
and become a pure spirit. All right? These people create all sorts of rules, which we might broadly call extreme asceticism. And the idea is to deny humanity on every possible level. And these groups compete with each other with all the rules they will put into effect. Do you remember the Heaven's Gate cult that decided to go fly off to the UFO? Once they took a look at those pod people's bodies, they found a whole bunch of the males had um, emasculated themselves. Why? Impure. Get rid of sexuality, you're closer to being a pure UFO type spirit that they were one of the UFO Gnostic cults. You're like, wow, that is crazy. Well, you understand what they're up to, right? If you want to truly be a spirit, get rid of the body. And the only way to really get rid of the body is to die. And that's what they did. They all offed themselves and flew away to their UFO. Allegedly. Probably not. But the idea is to deny your humanity with all sorts of rules. And so they end up rejecting, you know, I mean, they end up rejecting everything. Art, human culture. If it's human, it's bad. You know, these are the people that say if you, the word humanism, they're immediately suspicious, right? Whereas Catholics, we're humanistic. Doesn't mean we reject God. God became human. This is good, right? All the full, the full manifestation, the sciences, all these things, they're going to constantly inhibit these because the idea is to extract ourselves from human culture. And then the scriptures get twisted to support this. So you talk about 1 John. St. John in that epistle says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How do the Gnostics interpret that text? Well, that's what they've been saying. The world is bad. It's physical. The things of the world are all these material things. You should not love those things. You should love God instead. Except that the very next line, John defines the world. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh vice, the lust of the eyes, possessive vices like greed, covetousness, and the pride of life, pride, they are of the world and not of God. So you see how they take what John actually wrote, reinterpret it so that the world now becomes the physical thing rather than a world order that is against God by pursuing human vices like the Roman Empire was? That's what St. John was actually talking about. So the Gnostics become experts at taking things that are in the scriptures and twisting their meaning so that they can make it seem as though we ought to deny our nature. Look, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. When he said deny yourself, does he mean deny your humanity? If so, then how did God become human? If it's good enough for God, doesn't it stand to reason it should be good enough for us? What does he mean then? Take up your cross. What is he talking about? Well, what is it within yourself that causes the trouble? Selfishness. The opposite of love. Well, yeah, we do need to take up our cross when it comes to that, right? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a good friend to someone, you know what I'm talking about. How much time does your love force you to take on suffering and the burdens of others. Take up your cross. Follow me. But Jesus does not deny his humanity. That's one side. The other side, the other form of Gnosticism, 
is the extreme indulgence. On this philosophy, the body and what we do in it does not matter because all that matters is the spirit. In the book of Revelation, Jesus targets these people. He calls them the Nicolaitans. And they're a group of people who are totally lawless in the name of Christ. Their view was, hey, the body doesn't matter. We're going to become pure spirits. So whatever you do in the body is irrelevant. Do you remember the 9-11 hijackers? What were they doing the nights before they decided to fly the planes into the World Trade Towers for their God? They were in strip clubs. Now, do you think, if you're a Muslim, and you're drinking, because you're not supposed to drink, right? According to the Muslims. And being out with strippers, is this getting you ready for God? Well, in their view, it didn't matter. We're becoming martyrs. Nothing matters. The body's irrelevant. Now, would you as a Christian think that way? Would you think to yourself, you know, vice could be a problem? And so what we have are these two extremes. Notice that this perfectly patterns onto the ethics we talked about, didn't we? Because what would we call the extremes of both of these sides? The vices. The vice of too much. The vice of too little. And what does the golden mean? The proper use of the body. Look, we absolutely have limits because our bodies aim us sometimes in ways that are not good for us. And so we use reason and good counsel and wisdom, right, plus proper teaching, and we rule and manage our bodies appropriately with the virtues of moderation. So that's appropriate. But that assumes that the body can be properly ordered for the good. And we reject both of these extremes. The Gnostics end up going one way or the other because the body simply doesn't matter. And so strongly did the church endorse the idea that the body does matter, that Jesus raised from the dead in a real physical body, and he ascended into heaven in his body with the promise that when he came back, what would he come back in? It's permanent. There is nothing wrong with your humanity. The problem are your vices. But being human, that is great. Okay, yeah. So I'm reading the biography of St. Francis right now. Yep. And St. Francis, when he was first putting his brotherhood together, um, went barefoot in all weathers. I mean, they just had a simple homespun garment, and they begged instead of getting uh, proper food, and they were hungry all the time. Right. And um, would walk and, you know, people threw stuff at them and yeah. they begged for their food and, and yet they felt like this, the, the poverty was, was uh, uh, something that was drawing them closer to Christ. But you could look at it a different way and you could say, well, he was an ascetic, really. He was rejecting the body or ignoring the body at the very least mm -hmm. so that he could be close to Jesus. So... What about St. Francis? Right, a great question. And we don't have to be St. Francis's. In our ordinary Catholic lives, we have the fast. Mm -hmm. So why would we fast? For the Gnostic, all you have is the fast. For the church, what always follows the fast? Feast. The feast. 40 days of Lent followed by 
Did you, I don't know if, you, if we told you this yet. By the way, Easter is actually 40 days long. Yeah, 40 days. But 40 days of fasting. Always the feast follows the fast. What was St. Francis responding to historically? What was going on? Um, well, it was a time where there was a lot of superstition in Assisi, and there was a lot of, um, uh, I mean, he came from a very wealthy family. Um, he was, uh, there was a, a sort of a disparaging of poor people mm -hmm. uh, by the wealthy people of Assisi. Um, there was no care for poor people. There, right. And there were a few leper colonies, but, but Francis really loved um, sick and poor people. And so that was his, that was what he came to do. Right. Now, if you look through the history of monasticism, you will find that monastic orders always seem to rise up seemingly out of nowhere at a time where there's a specific problem in the church and they are the antithesis to correct it. Here's the way to think of it. The monastic orders are the Old Testament prophets of the church. In the Old Testament, God would send Elijah or Isaiah or Amos. And those guys often looked weird, had to do strange things to get attention. Hosea was forced to marry a prostitute and stick with her when she kept running around. You say, well, that doesn't make much sense. That's correct. John the Baptist, look at the way he dressed. Look what he ate. He was no great model of human culture. And yet Jesus said he was the greatest prophet ever. And Jesus pointed out that the Pharisees rejected John, the ascetic, who does not come eating and drinking. And he said, they reject me. And I hang out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the drunks. I hang out with all those people. Now, granted, he's not using prostitutes. You understand what I mean? But he says, it doesn't matter whether we live fully human lives or prophet-like lives we still get rejected. This truth gets rejected. So can God use certain kinds of people and have them act in ways that stand out in order to make a mark and to, in order to bring the church around to certain kinds of objectives? Definitely. In fact, another way to think of it, and we have an analogy in our lives, is the difference between civilian and military culture. The military people have a specific mission. And because of that mission, their lives function under a different sort of rule, different sort of clothes, different sorts of training that is physical and demanding and rigorous and self-controlled. The monastic orders are kind of like that army, but a spiritual one. And the monastics will spend a lot more time in prayer than we have time for, which is good because, well, frankly, we need that. And other ones will end up teaching and they'll have the Cistercians, or an entire order of teaching monks. And then what about hap what happened when the New World was found? What order suddenly pops up at just the time you need a massive worldwide evangelization? The Jesuits. the Jesuits. And they go everywhere spreading the gospel and convert nearly everybody in the Americas. Right? While the Spanish are trying to enslave them all, the Jesuits are saying, God loves them right under the Spanish imperial noses. And now we have this middle America and South America are chock full of Catholics, probably more than the United States. Extraordinary thing. So 
Can those people function by special kinds of orders? Absolutely. You say, well, they don't marry. Correct. Marriage is the natural human order. But we teach in the church there's two vocations. One is the vocation of marriage. The other is the consecrated vocation. Do those people eliminate gender? No. Because the monk or the priest cares for the church, who is the bride of Christ. There's the feminine. The nun, who is the feminine, functions with her ring to Christ as the masculine. So even there, the fundamental, the deeper order is still in place. It's not just a thesis withdrawal. It's extreme. That's why I use the word extreme. In which there is no feast. It's only withdrawal. Now, could Gnostics hide within those communities? Could people say, well, I'm going to become a priest because I want to get closer to God? Yes. Should they do that? No. It always worries me when I hear a person say, well, I became a priest because I wanted to be closer to God. I'm like, well, this is not good. You don't become closer to God because you are a priest. Were the Old Testament priests great people? No. It was a disaster. Look at the church. How are our priests doing? We have some serious problems with some of these priests. And there are others. They clearly did not become priests because they want to get closer to God. They do love God. But what drives you to become a priest? Love of the sheep. That should be the driving desire. If you think because you put on a collar, you're somehow closer to God, you're already on the wrong train. Why? There's two vocations. They're equal. The consecrated life and the married life. We're going to have saints from both groups. But there's this idea that if you become one of these things, the missionary, or you become a monk, or you, that somehow you're good to go. Not true. There's a danger in being a monk just like being a rich person. Remember, Jesus warns rich people, watch out, because you can put your faith in your riches and not in God. The monk can put his faith in his religiosity and think, if I do all these rules and say all my prayers and touch the rosary enough times, magic, I'm good. No. The only way you're good is if you love. And there are monks who understand that, and the way that they love is according to the rules of their order. And so, like one of, my, uh, one of my former students, her name is Trisha. She's in an order of, of consecrated women, not nuns, but you know, there's technically all these different ones, teaches these children. And she de devotes herself to these children. Other people are taking care of the lepers. And they give themselves over to that entirely. It makes sense they're not married, because if anything goes wrong, you see the risk, right? And so, there are things you can do when you're not married that you just don't have the distractions, and this is what St. Paul says, is part of the attraction of the consecrated life. You can fully give yourself over to these kinds of functionality. But that sounds militant, right? Like you have a special kind of vocation. You're on the front lines watching, protecting. And our weapons are not the weapons of war. Our weapons are the weapons of faith, of prayer, of healing, right? These things. So. When you look at these communities, that's how they should be thinking of themselves. That's how we should be thinking of themselves. Not that because they have withdrawn from the world, that they're holy, and we all, you know, we're just everyday, everyday jokes. So there's a risk. And that's what I meant when I said Gnosticism has infected the church. 
And in the Protestant world, you can again see Gnostic, Gnosticism at all the foundational movements of the Protestants. We'll talk about the Protestants when we get into church history in a couple of weeks at some point. But many of them had these foundational principles that were a repudiation of human nature, rejections of reason, faith that isn't rational, goodness that isn't love. And they always fall into these kinds of patterns. So the incarnation ratifies the body. The incarnation says it is a good thing. And it doesn't mean that in this fallen world, with all the pain and the disease, that your body is always going to be able to be fully satisfied. If we go that way, we end up over here. There's all sorts of self-sacrifice, giving to others, using our bodies in ways for the sake of others that sometimes damage us. And in the end, we all die. So, as St. Thomas puts it, the best we achieve in this life is imperfect happiness. When we see God and you get your fully restored, brand new, wonderfully, fully operational, permanent, immortal body, that will be different. So I want you to see that we walk a very tight line, okay? Tight line. St. Augustine said it so well. We belong to the city of God and we belong to the city of man. God is a spirit. Jesus says, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There is a point to the fast because it is not just physicality. So when we enter into the fast, and we'll teach you more about fasting when we get closer to Lent, but the purpose of the fast in part is to train us toward greater self-control, to put pressure on ourselves because when you don't eat, and in the old tradition, there was also a sexual abstinence element to it. You probably never heard about that, but well, the Orthodox still practice that. And just imagine 40 days eating no meat, no dairy. Let's do the whole old Orthodox fast, right? And no sex with your partner, which by the way, remember, is never allowed unless your partner consents. Just throw that out there so you understand that. Imagine doing that for 40 days and trying to get along with your spouse. You're like, oh, that's going to be a problem. Correct. Yep, the purpose of the fast is to shake us up. Now, for most of us, we're not going to be doing those kind of full-level fasts that the old Orthodox do. You might say it's bad enough to just not eat meat on Friday. Yeah, I know. That is tough. And you're like, man, I don't feel the best. I'm cranky. Correct. And so what do you have to do? You're going to work extra hard to be loving. Right. And that then is muscular exercise, isn't it? It's military training. And if you did enter into a relationship with your spouse where you agreed, we're going to, for the sake of the fast, for seven days, four days, we're not going to participate sexually, then that's going to train you in greater self-control. And what do you think is going to happen? The next time you're tempted by somebody, you see a really gorgeous woman, or you hear a guy who's real charming and witty, you're going to be that much stronger to say, I, clearly I don't need that. So is there a point to realizing that God is pure spirit, in and of his essence, and we have to love him and not put our bodies before God. Absolutely. And that is where these elements of the proper form of the ascetic, like the fast, have great value. But it is not the Gnostic heresy. And it is never saying that the body is evil and the spirit is good. The body is not evil. The body is great. And God ratified it through the Incarnation and the Blessed Virgin. Everyone understand? All right, you'll hear more of this in coming weeks. Don't you worry.
I know this is a very complex lecture, but you know, it's the incarnation, what do you expect? All right, we're good, yeah? Uh, do we just want to say a quick prayer, maybe a Hail Mary? And yeah, you want to go ahead and lead that? Great. In the name of God, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us.